welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest, Amanda Lee. Hello, Amanda. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on, Mandy, and I'm looking forward to this podcast with you. Mandy is very well known in the international arbitration world. But for those of you who don't know Mandy, I will give you a little bit of her background. Mandy is a senior advisor at Costigan King in London, but is a very prominent international arbitrator and involved in several international arbitration bodies. She is admitted as a solicitor advocate here in England and Wales, and is also called to the bars of New York State and the US Supreme Court. She is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, and a member of the Rising Arbitrators Initiative. And as I mentioned, she sits regularly as an arbitrator uh, in both domestic and international arbitrations. She is a member of the Advisory Council of Arbitral Women and a member of the Global Advisory Board of a number of institutions and their various committees. She is an ambassador for racial equality for arbitration lawyers and amongst other things, is a very prominent contributor to various um, thinking tanks in the arbitration world to spread the word about opportunities for arbitrators and for arbitration lawyers. And if that's not enough, she's also a visiting lecturer at the University of Law, where she teaches mediation and alternative dispute resolution. So I could go on a lot more about Mandy because she has a lot of great things to her name. Uh, But um, it's just great to have you on, Mandy. And I'm looking forward to this discussion. And we'll no doubt pick up on a number of the things that I just mentioned in your background. Absolutely. Now, let me start with this, Mandy. What first interested you in the law and why did you choose law as a career? It's it's a great it's a great question to get us started and it's it's a question that I tend to answer by explaining that I was a precocious child and my goal from a very young age was to become a lawyer in New York and I was telling relatives about this at family christenings apparently from from a scarily young age and I ended up being better at humanities than sciences so I went for law instead of medicine And ultimately had a fairly straightforward legal education. I did A-level law. I then did my bachelor's degree in law. And then I I did the legal practice course at what is now the University of Law, but showing my age used to be the College of Law. I ended up in dispute resolution, but I I was going to be an IP lawyer when I was at, um, at university. And then by the time I got to law school, I was going to be a banking lawyer, which I thought sounded terribly sexy, lots of money involved in that. And it transpired I was pretty good at civil litigation, though. And so ultimately, I ended up becoming a litigator. 
Well, fantastic. And, and you know, along the way, um, as you progressed from a student to a practitioner, have there been a number of people, Mandy, who've been particularly influential on you, both as inspirations or mentors? Well, my dad is probably my my greatest career inspiration in terms of essentially the idea that you do the hours you need to do the job properly and to do it well. He worked for the National Health Service for 40 years in various financial roles, and I had the pleasure and privilege of working with him during college vacations from the age of about 18. And I was always struck by his his commitment to our family. He had three jobs when I was a kid, so my mom could stay at home with me and my sisters. And, you know, if there's if there's a good a good role model to start with, I think dad was definitely definitely the man. Definitely. he was. Absolutely. I think our our parents play such a pivotal role in uh, getting us getting us started on the right path. And my mom, of course, was an inspiration, too. And my mom is I'm much more like my dad than my mom. My mom is uh, is much nicer than I am, I always say. And everybody laughs when I say that normally. <laughs> well, that's so. a, I mean, well, no, that's a big accolade to your mom. And, I'm, right, well. and I know it's got to be right. It's got to be true, Mandy. <laughs> well, as for, as for mentoring, I'm a huge supporter of mentoring. I have lots of fabulous mentees all over the world, but nobody's really mentored me. I feel as if I'm sort of, I'm sort of missing out in that regard. The closest thing I've ever had to a mentor is probably my dear friend, David Phillips, um, now King's Council, not not Queen's Council, of course. And he's probably the person who's been the greatest influence on my legal career. He He's always tried to push me. And he's one of these people who always tries to create opportunities for everybody on the team. And that sometimes involved him telling people things about me, such as, oh, she's brilliant at networking. And I would be like, I'm not brilliant at networking. Why are you telling them this? And he'd be like, well, go and prove me, prove me right. Otherwise, you know, you don't want me to be misleading people, do you? So I'd have to go off and prove that I was good at networking so that he wasn't embarrassing me, basically. And he's one of the few people who really, really knows me and knows how I how I work and how my how my brain ticks, as it were. So he's he's always always been a fabulous, a fabulous sort of sponsor of sorts. And I've been I've been very lucky to benefit from the guidance of a great many dear friends across the globe. And that was particularly helpful when I first started sitting as an arbitrator. So I definitely recommend that everyone in this field surround themselves with brilliant, compassionate people whose brains they can pick on a regular basis. We talk a lot about having mentors who are more senior than us, but having a group of solid individuals around you that you can rely on who are around the same level is absolutely vital. It makes us all better lawyers and hopefully better people. You you mentioned about David Phillips, KC. I I know you recently served as co-counsel with him in a Privy Council appeal, which arose from a decision of the Eastern Caribbean Court of Appeal. What sort of a case was that? What sort of principles of law did that case involve? It was a case that appeared to be one of those cases that was just going to go on forever. And... Essentially, it, it related to principles of company law arising under the law of Anguilla, but it um, it did involve an arbit- an arbitral award that was made by made by a mediator or made by a party that was described as a mediator. So there was some interesting arbitration terminology going on there, and a sort of almost confusion of roles between the two. 
And it's a case I've actually been, I was, I worked on in different capacities from the very beginning of my legal career. So by the time we made it to the Privy Council, I, I was fairly familiar with many aspects of this case and its history. So one of those, one of those cases that just never, you, you, you never think is going to end. So it was very sad when it did. Yeah. <laughs> and also though, but you saw it through from start to finish, which is a great thing, not least because, I mean, Privy Council appeals are, are things that not many people get to do, you know, so that's, a, you know, that's another feather in your cap. So, uh, you know, well done on that, Mandy. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about how you uh, first came to become an arbitrator. I know it sounds a bit basic to ask you this, but did you always want to be an arbitrator as well as being a counsel? Absolutely. I like making decisions. I like being in charge. I come from a project management background, so... The way I've always looked at things is that you you need to be efficient, you need to be cost effective, you need to be pragmatic, you need to be able to work as part of a team. Those are all qualities of good teams and good project management. And after serving as counsel for a number of years, I wanted a new challenge. I, I like new challenges. It's one of the reasons why I keep creating new initiatives all the time, because I'm always looking for the next exciting thing to do. And... I began focusing a bit more seriously on becoming an arbitrator when I became self-employed. So I've, I've, for the last few years, I've basically been a self-employed consultant, and that's given me more flexibility and control over my schedule. So that's meant sitting is, a, is more realistic. I began to be approached to sit as an arbitrator a few years before I first sat. I tend to turn down appointments if I don't think they're right for me and if I think I'm not the right person for the job either. I try to always suggest somebody, ideally somebody diverse if that is if that is the right person for the job who might be might be a better choice or a more appropriate choice and that's something that I I still do even as my career as an arbitrator has progressed. And I've I've been I've been fairly lucky I'm I'm obviously quite quite young by arbitrator standards we have of course discovered the the fountain of youth in arbitration anybody under 40 is is young forever and if you're over 80 you're probably in band 1 in the chambers guide so it really it really does keep us all going sitting as an arbitrator although i i'm still waiting for my first appointment as a party nominated arbitrator my my first four nominations to sit were all party-nominated arbitrator nominations. They were all LCIA proceedings, and every single potential respondent went into some form of insolvency procedure in each case before my nomination became an appointment. So now I basically think I'm jinxed. I'm convinced I've been jinxed when it comes <laughs> to party nominations. So we shall, we shall see if I ever manage to break that particular cycle. Otherwise, I, I cut my teeth sitting in documents-only arbitral proceedings, at the uh, in a sort of domestic domestic proceedings under the ABTA rules, so disputes between travel agents and similar bodies and parties who were upset about their vacations, and that was a it was a wonderful breeding ground. I mean, you don't you don't expect some of the things that arise in these in these smaller arbitrations, and they equipped me well to then go on to handle 
pure ad hoc arbitrations where you basically the parties might not have lawyers there are no arbitral rules you have to you have to essentially have a very have a very tight rein when it comes to managing the proceedings and and then of course i ultimately went on to the more conventional institutional appointment opportunities so we we shall see what what the future holds for me well, the future is going to be very bright. I can assure you of that, Mandy. And I think you're definitely not jinxed. That's one thing I can say. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, yeah, the party appointments will flow as well as a river before too long. I, I can assure you. You know, just on being an arbitrator, mm-hmm. what do you think is the hardest thing about being an arbitrator? That's a really good question. It's a really hard question as well, as all the best questions are. For me, the hardest thing about being an arbitrator is often when you've written the award and you've made your decision and you've decided this is what I'm going to do, this is this is the solution. It's it's not second guessing yourself. It's not spending the next three weeks analyzing whether you should have put an extra comma in that third sentence or whether you should have had an extra subheading or you should have done something slightly differently. It's it's that that self-doubt that creeps in when you when you first start doing something new so being able to sort of quiet those demons and and have confidence in what you have decided that was the thing i i found most difficult when i first started sitting Hmm. interesting no 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 i mean thank you for being so candid because that's always something that you know because everyone often focuses on the you know the good stuff about you know what you know what the <laughs> upside about being an arbitrator but you know it's, it's always fascinating to me because it's you know two sides of the coin so you know one of the things that really makes you stand out mandy to me and many others is that you are a very prominent female arbitrator in a world that has for far too long been dominated by men. And um, thankfully, things have been changing, and they're changing much for the better. There are many more female arbitrators coming through, establishing themselves and doing really well. And I know, amongst other things, you're very passionate about diversity, equity and inclusion, gender diversity, racial diversity, and all the other types of diversity that are so important to us. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could share some of your thoughts about, you know, just the importance of those concepts. And secondly, what more we can all do as an international arbitration community, including our clients, to really ensure that we further these principles. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, which is obviously something I'm very passionate about. I've I've been working on various diversity initiatives for about a decade now, which has been a fascinating experience. Why does diversity matter? Well, we're an international field for a start. We, We are a field that prides itself on being international. And if we are to remain legitimate, then those who are making decisions in respect of arbitral proceedings need to reflect the diversity of the community that is using those facilities. There's been so much research on why diversity is a good thing, why diverse decision-making is better, why diverse decisions are more robust. But in arbitration, unfortunately, as, as in the legal profession in general, it takes time for things to evolve. It takes time for things to change. Lawyers are risk averse. 
we don't like doing different things. We don't like that when things change. We don't like having to consider people for appointment if we don't have as much information as we could possibly have about them. We, we don't like making decisions on the basis of incomplete information. But the reality is we make we make decisions on the basis of incomplete information all the time. That's part of being a lawyer. So I don't see why we can't get better at appointing arbitrators without knowing their inside leg measurement or whatever it is we feel we need to, we need to know. There, there has got to be a certain amount of information that is appropriate to have. As for what, what we can do to make a difference, well, that's the million-dollar question, really. Things are moving slowly, too slowly, to be honest. What I would like to see on the institutional front is I'd like to see more data. I think institutions are doing a, uh, generally are doing a, a pretty good job of trying to appoint at least more female arbitrators. And we see the statistics and the numbers are ticking up slowly but surely. So we, you know, we use the SCC as an example. If we look at the 2022 statistics, 34% of arbitrators appointed by the SCC, the parties and the co-arbitrators are female. So 66% male. But if we look at the arbitrators appointed by the SCC, the majority were female. That's 54%. And that was a 5% increase on the 2021 statistics. So institutions are pulling their weight. But the problem is we don't know what lies behind these numbers. How many of those female arbitrators were first-time appointees? Who was appointing people for the first time? How many were based outside the West? What was the language of the arbitrations? How many of the arbitrators were not white How many were under 40? How many consider themselves to be disabled or neurodiverse? How many are members of the LGBTQ plus community? How many are first generation lawyers or first generation university graduates? We don't know. We need more data if we're to get a proper full picture of whether we are really making progress. It's a little bit like pointillism if you think about art. You don't see the full image until you actually step back. The statistics are the dots making up the picture, but the picture is unfinished. We need more dots. We need more data. So institutions, one thing they can do is to give us the data that we need to see the full intersectional picture. As for parties, well, we know that parties are increasingly indicating their interest in seeing diversity taken seriously, whether that's on the t- in the teams who represent them, on tribunals or otherwise. So as their advisors, as counsel, it's important that we think outside the box when we're proposing potential arbitrators for inclusion in shortlists, and that we're mindful as well about who we're putting on our teams that we're presenting to clients. Who are we allocating work to internally? How are we behaving to ensure that we're practicing what we're allegedly preaching on the diversity front? And one of the one of the principles that I always go on about is the idea that individual responsibility is important. Diversity is not someone else's job. It's not something that the institution should be doing or the party should be doing or council should be doing. Everyone can play a part. So for those who are listening, when was the last time you shared some positive news about a diverse colleague or friend? If you're a diverse practitioner, when was the last time you shared and celebrated an achievement of your own? When you were sitting as arbitrator, when was the last time you made clear to the parties that you encouraged the participation of junior advocates in hearings? After all, the council of today are the arbitrators of tomorrow. If they don't get advocacy experience, they're unlikely to succeed as arbitrators. 
We can advocate for others, but we also need to get better at advocating for ourselves because we can't sit around as diverse practitioners waiting for others to get on with it and give us the spotlight. Now, I appreciate that in some cultures, self-promotion is seen as distasteful, and I'm not trying to be culturally insensitive, but arbitration is a field in which practices are founded around cults of personality. We have our own rock stars in this field, basically. If you want your name in lights, you've got to lift your voice up on your own behalf and on behalf of others who deserve to see their names in lights too. And we need to get better at focusing on diversity issues other than gender. The focus on gender often lacks nuance. We're all more than our gender, and we need to make sure that we broaden our understanding of diversity. After all, the challenges that white women from the West face are very different to those that women in and from Latin America must overcome, and those that women in and from India must overcome, and those that women in and from the Middle East and Asia must overcome. So we have to focus on intersectionality. That is the new frontier. That is the thing that we need to be talking about. Otherwise, it's great that we're making progress on gender diversity, but if we don't think about intersectionality, we're going to end up with a female pale, stale future. We need to make sure that we are embracing intersectionality. Thank you, Mandy. That segment is one that I would love to just have as a self-standing answer in itself. It's a bit like lifting a single from an album. <laughs> that answer truly was one of the very finest expositions of the importance of all aspects of, of diversity, equity and inclusion, I have ever heard, truly. And this good. is an unscripted podcast. Our listeners hopefully will know from having listened to these things before. These are not scripted. We don't do these things in a rigid format. And, and so hence, my comments are just ad hoc. These are just, you know, as the interviewer in these podcasts, I have the huge benefit of listening to lots of fantastic people saying lots of fantastic things about many fantastic issues. I can honestly tell everyone, Mandy, that was an absolutely inspiring summary you just gave. And I would urge people to listen and listen and listen to that again and again and again. So, you know, I, you know, I really can't say any more to top that. I just think that's <laughs> brilliant. And, you know, I think one of the great things about what people like you can do, Mandy, because I know you are, if I, I hope you don't mind me saying, you're a force of nature in so many aspects, but Thank you. The, the force of good that you can do uh, to jurisdictions, and you touched upon in your answer a moment ago about certain jurisdictions where challenges for women are very different. And you mentioned a couple of geographies, and I agree with you, Latin America, a huge geography, um, India, a huge geography. And you and I have the uh, huge pleasure and privilege of being on the advisory board of Indian women in international arbitration. And as that jurisdiction undoubtedly gets stronger and stronger and stronger, it's already strong uh, and more mm -hmm. prominent. There are so many women whose voice, whose profiles can be uplifted by what you just said. And I think that's such an important thing because self-promotion in parts of Asia is not something that comes easily to people in their DNA. Mm. And so what you said, I hope, will inspire many, many women and all diverse arbitrators, arbitration lawyers, aspiring, middle-ranking senior so I just want to thank you again. And uh, I've gone very much off piste because I was just blown away by how beautifully you express that. 
And, you know, just one last question before we sort of uh, go into the final section of the podcast, which is, uh, as our listeners know, the more lighthearted end of the discussion. (laughs) In terms of arbitration, is there one thing that if you were able to wave a magic wand to improve the concept of arbitration in practice, is there one thing that you think could really change arbitration for the better in terms of reform? The one thing that I'm presently advocating for is a new initiative that I'm working with the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators on at present. And essentially, the initiative relates to creating a pipeline for the next generation of diverse arbitrators. We have the chicken and egg problem. We talk a lot about the chicken and egg problem in in arbitration. If you don't have experience, we can't appoint you, but you can't get experience unless you get appointed. So how are you going to get the experience? And so what I'm working with the Institute on at the moment, which is based on a paper that I wrote a little while ago, is an, an arbitrator observation scheme, a shadowing scheme whereby those who are hoping to sit as arbitrators in the future, but for various reasons may not have had the, and I say this in inverted commas, the right experience to date, perhaps because they mainly work in domestic proceedings or they work in a jurisdiction where there's not a lot of international proceedings or they work in a jurisdiction where it's not financially viable to have a you know 100% arbitration practice so they don't get as much experience as others. Those individuals can observe and learn from tribunals who've been there and done that. If you think about it in terms of medical education, you wouldn't let somebody remove your appendix if they'd never seen the operation performed. You want the person behind the scalpel to have not only read about the operation in a textbook, completed some training, done some practice and seen it performed. You want them to have seen it performed ideally a few times. And so when you have your aspiring surgeon operating for the first time, they're in the strongest possible position to do a good job. And the same applies to arbitrators. We've seen some wonderful initiatives from, for example, the ICC, where we've got the uh, the Hold the Door Open program, which, it, which aims to give observation opportunities to younger African practitioners. And I will say, I can only say fantastic things about the wonderful diversity opportunities that our colleagues in Africa have been creating. The Africa Arbitration Academy, the African Promise, and so on and so forth. They're definitely important, noteworthy initiatives. And there is so much talent coming out of Africa, male and female. But we can we can do more. We can start with assisting African practitioners, but there are practitioners all over the world who will hopefully benefit from what we're developing, which will be a protocol that any arbitral institution or individual arbitrator can pick up and they can use to offer shadowing opportunities to aspiring arbitrators. So that's how I would like to reform the field. I want to create a stronger pipeline of diverse arbitrators, and I want to make sure that everybody can be given a leg up. Fabulous. Thank you, Mandy. And that's very consistent with how you see things generally. So thank you very much for that. We now, to end the uh, podcast in time-honored fashion, Mandy, we're going to end on some more lighthearted discussion. Uh, and now one of the things I know about you, amongst the many things that you do <laughs> and, the, and the boundless energy that you have, you're also training to be a snooker referee. So tell us a little bit about your love of snooker and why you wanted to become a snooker referee. 
Well, my my father always jokes that I'm actually too short to become a snooker referee because he says I won't be able to spot the balls. I'm simply too short to put them back on the spots on the table. But I started watching snooker when I was a kid. You know, things like things like big break and uh, you know trick shots, that sort of thing. And one of the things I found myself doing during the pandemic as a sort of stress management technique was watching a lot of snooker. There's something wonderfully soothing about hearing balls clink gently against each other, you know, Newton's cradle writ large. And snooker is a fascinating sport. I know a lot of people think it's boring, but those are people who just haven't really fully appreciated its virtues. The psychology involved in snooker is absolutely insane. The mental side of the game is fascinating. And I wanted to find a way to get involved to support the snooker community, which, like the arbitration community, is taking steps towards becoming more diverse, but still has quite a way to go. And I thought, I can't play. I'm terrible at playing. I played pool a little bit when I was in college and and I was dreadful, frankly. So I, I didn't see myself being a snooker player, but I thought, hang on a minute, I could be a referee. That's rather like being an arbitrator. I could do that. So I decided to start training um, to be a level three referee, which is the, the first the first level. And so I've, I've done the course and now I just have to have a I have to have a special test to make sure I know the rules. And then I have to do some sessions that are recorded and on which I report. And then hopefully they'll they'll let me be a real life referee and I can go refereeing around clubs in, in the UK. So exciting stuff there for me. Fantastic. Well, well. Next stop, the Crucible. I think for oh, you. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> I think we should see you. You know, we we. You know, I just haven't seen enough female referees in snooker. We need more people like you there. But I look forward to uh, seeing you on BBC TV at the Crucible. <laughs> it's going to be the best. I look to forward do it. to it too. it's amazing actually i just remember as a young child uh, well i say that as a young child because i because it was such a long time ago snooker used to draw huge tv audiences and this is going back to the early 80s even the late 70s early 80s when i was a, a young boy i just remember the huge audiences and uh, you know it's and some of the games that we all watched when we were at that age which are still very imprinted in my mind Mandy I've got to tell you um, so uh, no no great stuff and then let me ask you two final things have have you got uh, a favorite band or singer that you particularly enjoy well I grew up um, listening to Queen and I believe I've basically been in a state of musical arrested development ever since. So I think we can probably give Queen the favourite band award. Well, Queen are brilliant. And and I don't think anyone will ever have the charisma which Freddie Mercury had. Some have come close, but no one will ever, in my view, emulate Freddie Mercury. I mean, uh, extraordinary. And if you think about diversity... Um, he embodied it as well. Uh, and so one last question, Mandy. So when you've got any spare time, and we've, it's clear from this podcast that you don't have much <laughs> spare time, where do you enjoy traveling to the most? New York. New York is my adopted home. So it's the only place where I actually feel at home. And who doesn't like to go home? So New York wins every time for me. But if I can't be in New York, somewhere in the Scottish Highlands. So if I'm not in New York, I like places that are basically so quiet it hurts. 
And so the Highlands win for me on that front. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I couldn't think of two more uh, opposite places <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, levels of volume than New York and the Highlands. But, uh, but, uh, but, but, but I can see why you like both. Mandy, thank you very, very much for an incredible podcast. It's been an absolute delight to do this one with you. And I just want to express my huge gratitude for all that you do, the example you set and the inspiration that you give to so many people. And I really have enjoyed doing this podcast. So, so thank you very, very much. It was absolutely my pleasure. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Congratulations to all of you for giving a platform to diverse practitioners and discussing these really important issues. It is, it is so important that we keep having these conversations. So thank you for, for having me and allowing me to join in with this one. And you, you let me talk about snooker. So uh, this is um, yeah, the best <laughs> podcast I've ever done, frankly. Anyone who lets me talk about snooker is like, you know, top of my list, I tell you. Yeah, snooker and law in the same thing. How, you know, how about that? But look, <laughs> thanks very much and uh, see you in person very, very soon, Mandy. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.